the music is foreboding and ponderous. We see a no trespassing sign as we move along a chain link, an ornately wrought fence with a magnificent capital K atop the gates. We continue to move towards what appears to be a castle on a hill, with glimpses of caged monkeys, Venetian gondolas in a canal, a bedraggled golf course. We approach a lighted high window and snap, the light goes out. Later, morning starts to break outside the same window. Suddenly, we see a snowstorm, with the flakes drifting onto the roof of a small cabin. We pull back to reveal the snowstorm is in a snow globe held by a man on a bed. We see his mustache mouth as he whispers the echoing word, Rosebud. The globe falls from his lifeless hand, rolling from the bed to shatter in our faces. A nurse rushes into the room, reflected in the shards of the snow globe, and slowly pulls a sheet over the man's form as the day brightens outside. The scene fades. Suddenly, an imperious voice, a fanfare of music, and the familiar look of a newsreel. News! On the march! The screen reads, Obituary, Xanadu's Landlord. With a quote from Coleridge's Kubla Khan, we see images of a multi-room castle, Xanadu. The newsreel voice booms out in the bass-ackward syntax so characteristic of the actual newsreel of the 30s and 40s, the March of Time. Legendary was the Xanadu, where Kublai Khan decreed his stately pleasure dome. Today, almost as legendary as Florida's Xanadu, world's largest private pleasure ground. The newsreel goes on about the Xanadu of Florida's Gulf Coast, constructed on a man-made mountain, built with the parts of other palaces, a private zoo, priceless and innumerable objects of art. All is a preface to the funeral news of Charles Foster Kane, America's Kublai Khan. Kane, the greatest newspaper publisher in history, the head of a business empire composed of multiple interlocking enterprises. The voice booms on to talk about the foundation of Kane's fortune, the building of his newspaper empire, his marriage to his first wife, his rise in the political arena until a scandal enveloped him, his second marriage to the, quote, singer with whom he had become involved. Kane continues to exert substantial influence on the outlook of Americans, invading the country to enter the Spanish-American War, misreading the coming of World War II. His second wife leaves him, and eventually he withdraws into Xanadu to be visited, finally, only by death. The voice rises again, News! On the march! We see the newsreel projected, now from the side onto a screen. Suddenly, the film grinds to a halt. A smoke-filled projection room is now dimly apparent, filled with a crowd of people. Someone picks up a microphone and says, Hello? Hello? Stand by. I'll tell you if we want to run it again. With this tremendous dislocation, we realize we've been watching the newsreel with the film crew the whole time. So we now know the story of Charles Foster Kane in 12 minutes, or do we? This is those wonderful people out there in the dark. I'm David Jansen.
Episode 10, Citizen Kane, Part 2. The tour de force of the reveal of the newsreel sets the stage for the quest for Kane. Ralston, the boss, notes that the newsreel needs an angle. He talks excitedly with Thompson, played by Olland, and all the crew who talk over one another about Kane's last words. Do you remember, boys? Rosebud. But what does Rosebud mean? What was it or is it? Ralston dispatches Thompson to find out, hoping this is the angle to Kane's entire life, holding up release of the newsreel until Thompson finds out. Thompson tries to talk to all those who knew Kane well, whoever loved him, whoever hated his guts, as Ralston puts it. Through the broken skylight of a nightclub as the storm rages, we see Susan Alexander, played by Commonor, huddled over a table as Thompson tries to ask her some questions. She's been drinking, and when he persists, shouts at him to get out. Thompson calls the home office for some exposition, that he's going next to read Thatcher's notes on Kane and then see Mr. Bernstein. The nightclub manager, John, by the way, is Gus Schilling, a particular favor of Wells's and a great voice. Thompson next goes into the tomb-like Thatcher library, over which looms a colossal, through the magic of film, statue of Thatcher himself. The library personnel treats Thatcher's diary like the bones of a saint. Thompson reads that Wall Street magnate Thatcher, played by Caloris, met Kane as a young boy, and we see young Kane riding his sled in the middle of a gentle snow. Mrs. Kane, played by Moorhead, the serendipitous owner of a valuable gold mine, signs the conservatorship of Kane over to Thatcher's bank, despite his grizzled father's protests. Thatcher meets young Kane, who is distrustful of him and unsurprisingly wants to know if his mother will be going away with him on the trip announced by Thatcher. His father explains he'll probably be the richest man in America, and this is the way that's best for him. Thatcher talks rapidly, trying to quickly befriend the boy, but young Kane shoves his sled at him. We then see the sled abandoned, beginning to be covered in snow, as we hear the whistle of the train taking Kane away from his family. We next see young Kane at Christmas, unwrapping, in recompense, a new sled, with Thatcher intoning a stern, Merry Christmas, with a jump cut through an obvious passage of time as an older Thatcher dictates, and a happy new year, in a letter to the now-grown Kane. Kane has come into his majority and informs Thatcher the only one of his many businesses he's interested in is a small, foreclosed newspaper they own, the New York Inquirer. It sounds like fun. Thatcher reads with increasing anger the Inquirer's stories of their fight against the rich and powerful as they're in direct opposition to his and Kane's own interests. His sputtering final question to a calm, seated Kane, played by you-know-who, is that your idea of how to run a newspaper? Kane replies he doesn't know how to run a paper. He just tries everything he can. Kane introduces Thatcher to Leland, played by Cotton, and Mr. Bernstein, played by Sloan. Thatcher reminds Kane of his own interests, and Kane strongly tells him of his populist views, reminding him that, at the rate he's losing money on the Inquirer, he'll have to close it in 60 years. Thompson feels that Thatcher's diary has been useless, especially in trying to unravel the mystery of Rosebud. He goes on to talk to the aged Bernstein in his expansive office, Bernstein reminiscing as he reads the stock market ticker. Bernstein calls Thatcher a fool and notes it wasn't about the money, that Kane was never interested in the money. He recalls how close Leland was to Kane, 
how Leland's family, though old, had nothing but debts. He then remembers starting at the Inquirer, that Kane changed it immediately to an all-day paper, focusing on what common people would want to read. Kane makes Leland a dramatic critic and, at the end of the first day, drafts a Declaration of Principles, which reinforces his deep populist views. Leland asks for the Declaration as a keepsake. Kane lusts after the staff of the competing Chronicle, the greatest in the newspaper game, as the trio look at a photo of the staff in the Chronicle's window. We pull back from the photo and realize it's come alive, that Kane has hired away the Chronicle's staff. Kane notes he can now go away for a rest, and a celebratory party ensues, with the band playing the song about good old Charlie Kane. Leland asks a pointed question of Bernstein. Weren't the men of the Chronicle dedicated to its viewpoint? Whose viewpoint are they dedicated to now? Bernstein says they're pros, that they'll do what they're told. Leland muses that, instead of Cain changing them, they may change Cain to their way of thinking. Cain keeps sending crated artwork back from his vacation in Europe, and Bernstein notes Cain's trying to buy the world's largest diamond. Leland asks whether Cain is now collecting diamonds, and Bernstein notes he's collecting someone who's collecting diamonds. When Cain returns to the Inquirer and a welcome by the staff, he gives a note to the society editor, revealing he's marrying Emily Norton, the niece of the president. Back in the present, Bernstein notes, Emily Norton was no rosebud. He suggests that Thompson go to talk to Leland, who Thompson informs him is at a local hospital. Nothing very much wrong with him, except he's lost the will to live. Thompson sits with Leland in the hospital's sunroom, and Leland talks about being Kane's friend and, bitterly, that Kane behaved like a swine. He contains Kane never gave away anything, and he never believed in anything, besides Charlie Kane and his life. Leland knew Emily in dancing school. She was very nice. But the Kane marriage became just like any other marriage. We see quick edits and time passing at a breakfast table between Kane and Emily, with their initial love and devotion devolving to complaints about how much time Kane spends at the newspaper, to sniping about gifts to their son, to Kane declaring imperiously people will think what I tell them to think, to a final deadly silence with Emily reading the competing chronicle. Leland thinks Kane only wanted love, that his story was how he lost love in his life. Kane loved his mother, of course, and himself. Leland then reminisces about Kane's second wife, Susan Alexander. Kane was going one evening to see his mother's belongings that he'd had brought from the West. He's splashed with mud by a passing wagon, and Susan offers him some hot water with which to clean up. Kane chats with her and learns she works at a music store, though her mother hoped for a grand opera for her. Kane says he knows about a mother's ambitions for a child. Susan sings for him, and he applauds. We see in Dissolves that Kane buys her a better piano and a more luxurious apartment, still applauding her amateurish singing. A further set of dissolves and jump cuts show Leland boosting Kane's campaign for governor with a linking cut to a bombastic, self-congratulatory Kane speech in which he promises to see Boss Jim W. Geddes in prison. Geddes, played by Collins, is watching from a shadowy seat high above the stage. As Kane meets his wife and son after the speech, Emily asks him to accompany her to an address which Kane recognizes as Susan's. There, they're surprised by Geddes at Susan's apartment.
Gettys notes sardonically that he's no gentleman, but sent the note and is giving Kane a chance to go away and drop out of the governor's race, or the newspapers will get the story on Kane and Susan. While Emily assumes he'll drop out, Kane believes that the love of the people of the state won't be taken from him, as he poetically puts it. Kane roars down at Gettys as he departs that he's Charles Foster Kane, not some cheap, crooked politician. As Gettys and Emily leave from the front of the apartment house, we see the same scene through a dissolve, framed as a newspaper photo that a newsboy offers to Leland. Kane caught in loveness with, quote, singer. Leland heads to a bar immediately. The Inquirer has to run the headline, Fraud at Polls, instead of Kane elected. Sound familiar, 2022 U.S.? Leland, drunk, finds Kane in his campaign offices. He reads him the riot act about Kane acting as if he could give the people a present of liberty, that the working man is getting organized into unions, and Kane won't like that, since they'll demand their rights rather than have them doled out by Kane. He accuses Kane of trying to persuade people he loves them so much they should love him back for love on his own terms, which wounds Kane deeply. Leland asks to move to the Chicago paper, threatening to quit if Kane refuses. Kane offers a final toast to love on my terms. Those are the only terms anyone ever knows, his own. Kane's subsequent marriage to Susan is headlined, and Kane notes he's through with politics. Susan will sing at the Met, to which Susan pipes up, if the Met won't have her, Kane has promised to build her an opera house. It won't be necessary, says Kane. The next headline is Kane Builds Opera House in Chicago. The next cut is to frantic backstage preparation for Susan's Chicago Opera House debut, Salambo. Everyone is in a panic, and Susan is hurried into position on stage. The curtain rises and she begins to sing. We move into the rafters to see two crew members give each other the side eye, and one holds his nose. We join the Inquirer's Chicago office, where Mr. Bernstein is prepping the reporters for their canned, enthusiastic reviews of the evening. Kane surprises them, and he and Bernstein discover Leland, drunk, sprawled over his typewriter and the start of a bad dramatic notice. Kane sits down to finish it, continuing Leland's cutting remarks. Leland wakes to hear Kane working in the other room, greets him, and notes he didn't know they were speaking. Sure we are, Jedediah. You're fired. Back in the present, Leland notes that Kane was trying to prove to him through the notice that he was honest, he was always trying to prove something about himself in the best light. Leland said Kane wrote him to come visit at Xanadu, but he never even replied. He felt Kane was disappointed in the world and built one to suit himself. The nurses take Leland away as he implores Thompson to get him some cigars, despite a young doctor trying to keep him alive, a condition in which he is no longer interested. Thompson goes back to the nightclub where Susan works, and has better luck asking questions. She talks about the fact that she didn't want to sing. She didn't want an opera house. It was all Kane's idea to wipe out the quotes around the word singer, as she was characterized in the papers after the scandal of their romance. She reminisces about the pain of the embarrassing voice lessons she takes with Signor Matiste, in which he finally derides her and tells her she can't sing, until Kane uses the force of his will and money to force Matisse to continue. 
We flash to Susan's memories of the Salambo tour, how in Chicago she's ridiculed from the audience. With Kane attempting to lead, unsuccessfully, Curtin calls for her performance. His force of will can't drive the audience to appreciate her poor voice. The next day, the papers pan her, including Leland's and Kane's dramatic notice. She rips Kane for sending Leland a check for $25,000 in response to his firing. At the same moment, Kane receives a message, the torn-up check from Leland, but also the shreds of his long-past Declaration of Principles. Susan wants to stop the tour, but Kane snaps at her that he won't be made ridiculous. She will continue. Kane's money can buy more stops on the tour for Susan, with Kane papers building up her image. Desperate, Susan takes an overdose of a sleep medication and is barely saved. She explains to Kane she can't go on with audiences that don't want her. He wants her to fight on, but finally notes it's the public's loss. They retire to the castle at Xanadu, with Susan wishing to travel and enjoy life. Kane is withdrawing from the world and simply imports friends for parties and frolics. They go on a picnic to the Everglades, but it's more glamping than a picnic. There, Susan confronts him with a statement terribly similar to Leland's, that Kane tries to buy people's love as he buys jewelry and art he never looks at. He's trying to fill a hole in his spirit that can never be filled. The next day, Raymond the butler tells Kane that Susan is packed and is leaving him. Kane tries to mollify her, to tell her he'll do it her way, but slips and says she can't do this to him. She walks out. In the present, Susan talks about how she lost all her money in the Wall Street crash. In the end, she still feels sympathy for Kane. Thompson travels to Xanadu to join the rest of the crew and try to sum up the mystery of Rosebud. Raymond talks about Kane, how, after Susan left, in a fit of rage, he tore her room apart. He suddenly stopped when he saw a small snow globe in the destroyed room. He murmurs, Rosebud. He puts the globe in his pocket and walks by the staff, absently plodding through the echoing castle. Raymond notes he said all kinds of crazy things, that he said Rosebud just once more before dying. Raymond joins the crew taking pictures and cataloging the immense and chaotic load of art, furniture, and knickknacks that are stored in Xanadu. The crew questions Thompson. Did he ever find out what Rosebud meant? If he'd found out, they bet that would explain everything. Thompson says that Rosebud may have been something Mr. Kane couldn't get or that he lost. But no one word can explain a man's life. It's a missing piece in a jigsaw puzzle. As the crew departs, we follow the ongoing sweep of the possessions of Kane, of Xanadu, room after room, moving over crates, boxes, garbage cans, lamps, candlesticks, pictures, statues, until we're at a room in which workmen are clearing the junk from the incredible assemblage. They toss the refuse on a furnace fire. A workman picks up a boy's small sled and tosses it into the fire. As the flames consume it, the heat highlights the paint of the surface and the detail of a single rose, with the words rosebud emblazoned across the top of the sled. The flames destroy the sled, and we see the smoke from the furnace rise out of Xanadu into a dark sky. The sled he lost on the snowy plains of Colorado, lost as the train took him away 
from his life. Greatest of all time. It's a bold statement for anything, but of all the films made since Edison, Kane has been routinely recognized as the top. In the British magazine Sight and Sound, it topped the evaluations from 1963 to 2012. Time Out magazine similarly cataloged it, and the AFI ranked it number one in 1998 and 2007. It's a wonder of technique and an onslaught of visual images and sound as never before gathered in a single film to that time. I'm reminded of John Lennon talking about Elvis. Before him, the world was black and white. After he debuted, the world was color. The before and after of Kane is that dramatic. But it's more than the techniques, the writing and direction, the amazing cast. The two parts of the film that appeal most in the long term are the internal emotional depths to which the character of Kane is plumbed, as well as the external elements of the fight to ever release the film. What about Rosebud? Is Rosebud a central mystery that can't be unraveled, except as the diabolus ex machina of an incredible film? I like Alan commenting to Mr. Bernstein on another subject. Everybody knows that story. The symbolism of the sled is actually foreshadowed in the film several times. Mr. Bernstein talks about the fact that Kane wasn't about the money. It was never about the money. He thinks Rosebud may have been something that Mr. Kane lost. Leland describes in detail that Kane's story was about how he lost love in his life. Susan bitingly goads him that he uses his money to buy love, including hers. To me, the loss of love, symbolized by the loss of the sled Rosebud, as Kane is being torn from his family, from his mother, is tied up in the characters of Mank and Wells. Most directly, Rosebud was supposedly a construct from a bike that Mank lost due to its being stolen while he was in a library, never to be replaced by his family. Mank was a quiet introvert as a child, who never quite gained acceptance by his father, Franz, even up to their separation through death. The bicycle, for example, wasn't replaced, as a punishment for Mank's supposed carelessness. Mank even built up his achievements in writing Kane for his father, beyond his actual and substantial contributions, trying to live up to a father's expectations of even an Oscar-winning script. Mank noted he was going through psychoanalysis during the period of writing Kane, and the bicycle incident cropped up repeatedly in his therapy. He harnessed and wrote the feelings of sadness and emptiness of the incident and his family relationships directly into Kane. Perhaps that helps explain the potent symbol of Rosebud, but even more overwhelming and germane to the theme of the loss of love are the shadows on the life of Wells. Wells grew up in brilliant but unsteady family surroundings. His family was wealthy due to his father Richard's invention of a successful bicycle lamp. Beatrice Wells was a dedicated mother and talented pianist and devotee of the arts. However, 
Wells' older brother, Dickie, was institutionalized young due to learning difficulties. His father stopped working and became an alcoholic. His mother continued to raise Wells and, at first, provide for him through her piano work. But she died when Wells was only nine years old, and he was sent to live with his alcoholic father in Chicago, along with a mentor, interestingly named Dr. Maurice Bernstein. His father abandoned even this stable of life and toured the Caribbean and Asia with Wells in tow. As with many children of alcoholics, Wells seemed to spend as much time caring for his father as vice versa. Eventually, Wells ended up at the Todd School for Boys in Illinois. During this time, Wells told his father he would not see him if he continued drinking, to try to encourage him to stop. His father's eventual lonely death in a hotel from the effects of alcohol caused Wells deep guilt. Wells escaped to Europe, the stage, and a career. Out of this unstable life came repeated themes in Wells' work. In this pod, we've talked about it as a chord in The Third Man, though Wells was only an actor in that film rather than director or writer. But the loss of and deception in love and friendship is a many times theme of Wells' films, including Ambersons, The Lady from Shanghai, Macbeth, The Stranger, Othello, Touch of Evil, and The Chimes at Midnight. Wells himself, later in life, was disloyal or cruel to longtime confidants, such as director Peter Bogdanovich and Gary Graver, Wells' cinematographer late in his career. Like Kane, Wells may have had an empty space from his strangled childhood, which no amount of food, adulation, money, or women could fill. Not to be too much the amateur psychologist, but Wells' personal fascination with magic and his work as a stage magician may be germane. The magician has the means to completely control an uncertain environment in which things are never quite as they seem. This is also an element of stagecraft in film. In the end, the greatest loss to Wells, since it severed his ability to easily make films, to make magic and control an environment of his own design, may have been his rejection by Hollywood after Kane. Though Wells, Mank, and Houseman would say that the character Kane was built on a variety of business tycoons, many of the aspects of the story parallel the life of William Randolph Hearst. I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hearst was born to a mining fortune, was sent away to boarding school, expelled from Harvard, and, in casting about for a trade, took on one of his father's possessions, the San Francisco Examiner. Hearst built a yellow journalism empire from this start his early populism later taking a deep rightward turn with the arrival of the New Deal. He collected art, had a California castle, San Simeon, as well as a long-term affair with actress Marion Davies. A case could be also made that Kane resembled Harold Fowler McCormick, always three names, of the McCormick family, whose fortune was established through the invention of the mechanized reaper and the founding of the International Harvester Company. McCormick's second wife, Ghana Walska, had a famously weak voice, yet desired a career in grand opera. McCormick promoted her singing, sponsored her voice lessons, and eventually sought her engagement in the opera Zaza at the Chicago Opera. An engagement in Havana to sing Fedora, the audience threw vegetables at her, so poor was her performance, something that Wells recalled in bringing to light the character of Susan Cain. But Hearst was the tycoon with the largest megaphone. Though Wells had managed to hide the early rushes of Kane from the RKO board 
and any members of the working press. A rough cut was shown to writers in January 1941, prior to the planned Radio City Music Hall premiere in February. Gossip columnist Hedda Hopper forced her way into the screening and immediately wrote that it assassinated a great man, that is, Hearst. Incredibly embarrassing was the fact that Hopper was the rival of Hearst's own gossip columnist, Luella Parsons. Side note, it seems long ago and far away from the current mania of people being famous for being famous, but in the 30s and 40s, Parsons and Hopper were singular and real forces in Hollywood, with millions reading their columns. Their word would boost or destroy an actor's career. Their influence had waned by the 50s, with my favorite comment being Brando's. To him, Hopper was the one with the hat, and Parsons was the fat one. Hearst let Parsons know how unhappy he was that he'd heard about the film from her rival, and Parsons went on a rampage. She demanded a private screening of Kane, then threatened Schaefer and RKO with an ill-defined lawsuit. She also demanded Radio City Music Hall not screen the film. Hearst mandated that none of his papers would mention Kane nor any other RKO picture. Schaefer didn't fold, and Parsons went to other studio owners to threaten them with stories on the private lives of film employees, on Wells's private life. Even more threatening, a series of articles in Hearst's papers on the employment of refugees and foreigners in studios instead of native-born Americans, with the point that most of the studio heads were immigrant Jews. The studio heads banded together, and RKO was offered, through MGM's parent company, $805,000 to surrender the negative so it could be destroyed. Schaefer had Wells screen the film for the RKO board and corporate lawyers, and, with three minutes of cuts, told Parsons and other studio heads to F off. Hearst's empire, of course, kept up the war. No mention of Kane or RKO in Hearst's papers. Threats to theater chains that might run the film. The film debut at RKO's own Palace Theater to very positive reviews, but couldn't catch fire with the headwinds from Hearst Incorporated. It was nominated for the Academy Awards for 1941 for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Original Screenplay, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, Best Film Editing, Best Score, and Best Sound. As noted, Wells and Manx shared the Best Original Screenplay Oscar, the rest was lost in the fear and pressure from Hearst's campaign against the film. How Green Was My Valley won Best Picture in 1941. It's a great, touching film, but no one organizes film festivals around it. Kane and the Fallout reversed the mantle of boy wonder, or perhaps confirmed Hollywood's disdain for Wells's genius. RKO went through wholesale changes. The board firing Schaefer, changing its motto from quality pictures at a premium price to showmanship over genius, a direct swipe at Wells. Wells's contract was reworked, and he lost Final Cut, to the terrible detriment of another landmark film, his second feature, The Magnificent Ambersons, which was crudely and cruelly cut with a dull knife by the studio, the ending reshot, and the film placed on the bottom of double bills. What remains of Amberson's is still a work of monumental proportions, but so much was lost. In a terrible coda to Kane, when its reputation was resurrected in the 50s and 60s, and there was demand for restored VHS versions and then DVD and Blu-ray editions, 
it was discovered that the original negatives of what was thought to be a non-commercial, worthless film had been melted down by RKO for the value of the silver content. The restorations had to be accomplished with the best surviving and dispersed elements of the film. Just as young Kane's sled had been burned, leaving a void in his heart, his dear connection to his lost past, so RKO tossed the negative of Kane on a fire to extract what little value they thought the film still had. Wells' reputation in Hollywood was lost. He was viewed as non-commercial, unable to keep to a schedule or a budget, the problems of Amberson's and the later abandonment of It's All True adding to the carnage. Wells was reduced to working in Europe, scrounging to finance films that he wanted to make, that he felt he must make. He attempted to return to Hollywood to try to convince the studios he'd play ball, that he was bankable, as in his film The Stranger. But he had to continue his somewhat ragtag professional existence to the end of his life, financing his films through acting work, delaying completion of films for years at a time as he searched for funds, so much so that some actors in his films would pass away before completion. If a genius like Wells was alive today, with his resume, Netflix would be giving him $100 million to create his dream film. Well, they might have until Netflix's recent reversals. But Wells soldiered on to the end of his life, still working on a final film, The Other Side of the Wind, at his death. Whatever emptiness that had been left in Wells' heart from across time, in the sweep of the plains of the Midwest, by his family, by his compatriots, by his industry, he still endeavored to be the teller of tales through film. As in mountaineering, the descent from the mountain that is conquered is actually the most dangerous part of the climb. Wells found that to be true on the long descent from the greatest film of the era, Kane. But he never lost the need or the fight for excellence, to do something novel, to achieve, to fight against forces intent on destroying the unbound creative urge. I believe that's what drove Wells, whether it was to fill a hole in his heart or not. That's what drove Hemingway's leopard to the slopes of Kilimanjaro, to climb higher. You can find us on the web and social media. We're at those wonderful people on Instagram and at Films in the Dark on Twitter. Our website is thosewonderfulpeople.com, where we post pod episode transcripts, and you can leave your questions and comments. Our music is by Martin Shellikens, Alex Zavesa, and Alex Chernick. I'm David Jansen. Talk with you soon. And as always, I'll leave the last word to Mr. Scorsese. What are the essentials to you? What makes cinema? I think what makes cinema to me, uh, I think ultimately it's something that for some reason stays with you uh, so that a few years later you could watch it again. Or 10 years later, you watch it again and it's different. In other words, there's more to learn mm -hmm. about yourself or about life. Mm -hmm.